We are back for another Codex Cantina episode, which is just two guys talking literature, trying to make sense of it. Now, we spend a lot of time pushing ourselves, trying to understand this literature, organizing it, and then bringing it to a conversational approach for how we deliver it. And we've absolutely put more money in it than we've gotten out of it. So if you guys are considering supporting this channel, we'd appreciate you checking out our Patreon link at patreon.com slash the Codex Cantina, as well as Ko-Fi of ko-fi.com slash the Codex Cantina. It all helps us in running the show, along with commercials, guys. So thank you so much. We're going to do a quick commercial break, and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. Do you think Thin Lizzy wrote the song, The Boys Are Back in Town, about Flem entering Jefferson? <laughs> Flem's back in town! Flem's back in town! <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Uh, yes we're I do. back with some of the hilarity of William Faulkner. With that said, I think we may uh, not be, I, I don't know. You said there was a tonal shift here. I, I got the feeling you weren't loving this one, maybe at all, like as much as the Hamlet. Like, tell me about your experience with this one. All right. So I'll be completely open and honest, obviously. I read the Hamlet, I listened to the town. Hmm. I think that is one part of it. So mm-hmm. I think that sometimes the inflection of my own inner voice reading versus listening to a narrator can add different tones. But I, mm-hmm. and besides that, I think there was a tonal shift of this one felt a lot more serious and the Hamlet felt a little bit more jovial. And I think the good way to describe that is the Hamlet felt like it was your preteen years. All right. You were a tween. You were just having fun. You were 12. Summers were awesome. Everything was good. And then you become a teenager. You get a job. You get a girlfriend. You struggle a little bit. The town felt like your teenage years. You're going through puberty. Things rough. Uh, I'm nervous to get to the mansion, but I just felt a lot more serious this time around. We got to step it up when you move up into the big town of Jefferson, right? Do you think uh, Faulkner, I mean, there was 17 years difference between when 1940, the Hamlet was released to 1957 when the town was released. Do you think Faulkner just grew more resentful? Like he, he sat on these characters for 17 years, saw more and more of how people treated each other. Do you think he's entered, he's entering into some more of his curmudgeon years of, of just being angry at how people take advantage of each other almost maybe but i think that those characters are alive in his head and for 17 years they're changing inside of his mind and we don't know what happened in those 17 years uh so it's kind of like you have jesus as a baby and then you have jesus like 30 right you don't know what oh, happened yeah. you never got the you never got the, the jesus you got the blackout period <laughs> Yeah. So we have a blackout period of the Snopes family and their only evolution is inside of Faulkner's mind. And we didn't get Mm. any of that. So I think they do evolve and change. And yes, I think that obviously we're all influenced by external factors. And Faulkner was probably influenced by the 40s and the 50s and, you know, the Korean War and and everything else going on in the world uh, and and the great changes that are happening. But I think that internally he has processed their changes. And so we see this big jump across uh, years in a short time period that's happening in the story. Long time in real life, short time in the story. And we see these very, very big shifts of how uh, the, the Snopes and the other people of Jefferson are treating one another. Yeah. 
Well, I would say this, the, the narration of this one even becomes more complex. It'd be interesting to hear your opinion on the audiobook because we kind of have three narrators and they're all very different, I would say, but they're all looking at the same person, right? We're looking at Flem, the poor sharecropper that's worked his way up the chain now into Jefferson. And we see him work his way through Jefferson all the way from restaurant tour, all the way up to eventually bank president. And all along the way, whenever he leaves, like people point out that Snopes in, you know, fill in the vacuum where he leaves, like he's paving the way for his family to kind of take over and fest and, and become more prominent in this town even. And I wonder if that's like kind of like commentary just on nepotism and the way that, you know, a lot of power in the South worked back then, right? You had, well, what Faulkner grew up with was a lot of the, the, the remnants of how land was passed down, the remnants of how families married into other wealthy families that uh, you saw nepotism with how power got passed down. And you see him almost kind of like attacking that American dream a little bit here. Yeah, agreed. I think that Flem represents obviously the old way of doing things, that good old boy system. And during the 1950s, things have started to change into, you know, that American dream is you can pull yourself up by the bootstraps. That's not quite as realistic anymore because your whole identity isn't tied to land. Many people are working in factories and many people are moving around now. We become a much more mobile society where Jefferson feels a little bit like it's a time capsule. It's locked in time. Mm. And Flem kind of represents that being locked in one way of doing something. I could see that because they have a problem with almost shedding their skin to move forward too, right? Even though to your point, the way of business has changed, the way of mobility has changed from horses to automobiles, right? We see how automobiles happen here and there's the hilarious first automobile in the county in uh, the his, his book, The Reavers, which is just, you know, hysterical, but they still hold on to a lot of their old values, right? Like that's that's the Southern way in terms of protecting women, protecting the Southern belle. We still see some of that honor being a major forefront for this book. And we see a lot of how Gavin will interpret it in this book. And we're almost kind of guessing of what is Flem's motivation, I feel like, through most of this. I also struggle with that as well of what does Flem really want to get out of this? Does he want to rule the town? Does he want to just feel that he can lord everything over everybody else, that he got one over on everybody? I, I struggle with his motivation, especially when it comes to, to love or children, uh, his quote daughter. Uh, and then you have Gavin, who almost seems like the white knight. You know what he wants. You, Gavin is very straightforward, and he kind of represents that forward-thinking man. He gets conflicted, too, though, right? Like, so, so, okay, so we start off the story with, with Flem looking at the monument, <laughs> the water tower, because basically, you tower. know, he, tri he tricked the two people into stealing the brass fixtures, whatever they were, safety valve, something like that. And tried to pit them against each other. It gets stuck up there. Um, but also it's kind of like that idea of monuments to the South means something. Monuments all over the world, they mean uh, honoring the past a lot of the times. But but the South, when they honored the past, kind of like what we talked about holding on to their old virtues, uh, very different and strange meaning, particularly when we look at recently with 2020, how a lot of the old Civil War monuments got ripped down from the South, right? 
And we, we talk about these tales of what did the past mean to us, which is kind of what these monuments are, representations of things from the past. And we open up this narration with the stories of like the salted gold mine. Uh, Ab Snopes was allegedly hanged and we find out that he's still alive. Like we, we see some of these stories don't necessarily always have truth behind them. And that's kind of what I feel like the characters are discovering, too, is is what is reality here? What is honor and what should we uphold as opposed to what we actually do? Yeah, I, I love the water tower. I you, you just imagine this like big old gaudy water tower, you know, maybe with the name Jefferson writ on it. And maybe Flem is a little bit forward thinking because I, I bet he looks up there and he says to himself, that thing's hideous. That thing is such a sore. But then he uses it to manipulate to his own advantage. And I think that's kind of the 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 heart of what I eventually found out kind of to be his goal is he's trying to use the old ways in a modern society to still get out the, the to still win. Did you know that Faulkner? So speaking of the power plant, did you know he used to work at uh, I don't know if it was a power plant or a coal facility. He worked somewhere along those lines. And that's actually when he wrote as I lay dying. Like and then he, he claims in like a six week fury. Right. But the funny thing is, like, in terms of manipulating others to do your work, like, he would come home, according to his wife, just spotless, which if you're shoveling coal, you should be filthy. <laughs> meaning, oh, yeah, he had right. the other, <laughs> meaning he had the other people there doing all the work, kind of like what Flem was doing, too. I just think that's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, he is the most dishonest person in this whole story. He's he's made out to be the villain. I think he's a good villain. He, he's not a great villain, because I think a great villain you love to hate and he is sympathetic in some ways. He's just trying to live his best life at the expense of others, and that's why you hate him, but he's not doing it for malicious purposes. I mean, he's doing this to get promoted himself. Uh, he's trying to make more money. He's trying to make the Snopes family you know, have more power. Uh, he's not doing it just because he's evil or mean or bad. That, that's what I'm like, God, I want to hate this guy, but I can't. Right. He's unfettered greed with amoralistic standards. And Gavin Stevens, I mean, the Stevens name, if you recall, when we read A Rose for Emily, Judge Stevens, right? Like, and you need to talk about Daddy Judge. Like, it seems real fair that your dad, the judge, is presiding over your case as a lawyer. No, no conflict of interest there, right? But the Stevens name is old to Jefferson, right? Flem, the, the insider is going to, or the outsider is going to come in and, and he, does he view himself as protecting the town, protecting his name? Like he talks so much about how we Jeffersons, right? Like we, we Jeffersonites, we, we got to protect each other and, and the honor. And, uh, you know, later on with like the, the Monty pornography scene, like it wasn't like, okay, let's bust him on pornography because that means Jefferson is implicit in the action of viewing the pornography. So instead we're going to bust him on white lightning right? Prohibition. We're going <laughs> to get him on that whiskey charge to protect Jefferson's image, right? And that's, again, part of like that old Southern way of life too, of, of protecting. I, I keep saying the word honor. I don't know For if maybe I don't virtue. Know if, I don't know if yeah. it's, it's either not the right word or the meaning of what honor meant back then might not mean the same thing it does today. Oh, for sure. Well, it's like right? the, because, yeah, because because it is an external thing. Like society is what I think defines honor is, is one way I think of it. 
and obviously society has changed. Uh, I, I think with like the pornography thing is, is that it just showed that everybody in this story is kind of a hypocrite. Even Gavin, who is, quote, our good guy, isn't all that much better than Flem because they're all hypocrites and they are so enamored or they, they are so that's not the right word. They are the honor or again, lack thereof or whatever word we want to use of the people of the town is so important to them. They're willing to lie to themselves and to each other of these trumped up charges in order to preserve the dignity of the women, because otherwise they would have been known accomplices to all of this goings on at the photography business that had the, you know, pornography in the back. So, I mean, they, they, it just shows that Flim isn't that bad. All right. So let's talk about some of the women in this story. Let's start with Eula. You know, we, when we talk about the cotillion ball, <laughs> talk about a plot MacGuffin. How do we get all these characters together? Like Despain, Eula, Flem, and Stevens in one room. Let's have a cotillion ball. Now, with that said, the, that those balls do have a heritage behind. I, I'll leave a link down below. I won't give you the history lesson now, but it does represent a showing of social etiquette, a showing a coming of age, almost for a young, a young man to kind of demonstrate all that he's learned in a sense. And anytime you have a ball in literature, like there's before the ball and there's after the ball and they don't look anything alike. <laughs> and, and I would say this, this ball kind of changed my view of, of Gavin, at least, you know, before, I don't know what it was, but we saw how he was going to go to any length to protect Eula. Like, well, why, why? Like, it's such a strange obsession for him, how he'd like hang out in the ditch. <laughs> he'd send his wife over to go talk to them. And, and then he gets into a fight with Manfred de, Fran uh, de Spain because of honor. Like he's going to go to fight with this guy that served in the Cuban war over here. Like, is this really a good idea, Gavin? <laughs> I think that Gavin is headstrong. I think that he's young. I, I don't think that he's written the best uh, he seems to be almost the stereotypical kind of hero. Um, but when, when you think about like this ball, I, I don't think it is necessarily just a plot device. I think it, it fits very well into the story. These events were made in order to show everything off of you show your clothes, you show who your friends are, it shows mm -hmm. off your wealth. I, I think it's a lot more to it than just let's get everybody together. I think that it can help. It does do that and it helps move the story forward. But I think it does show that old Southern way of life of we're going to hold on to our tradition and our heritage and having those big parties is something that they always did. And they will continue to do because the rest of the country, I mean, you, you don't have big parties like that anymore. You, you, you don't really have any parties. You go home and sit down and get your TV dinner and watch TV even in the 1950s. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's even a quote where it talks about a demagogue's capacity for using people to serve his own appetites all clouded over with a veneer of culture and religion. Ooh. <laughs> Faulkner's got some pretty, he's got some solid writings when he talks about how we dress things up with culture and, you know, like religion, kind of like what you're just talking about. Um, let's talk about animals. Like I've been tracking kind of how animals are constantly used to compare the Snopes. And, you know, if you recall from the Hamlet, the the phlegm was described as having like a hawk's nose that was put there by an architect that was different from the rest of his body. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's, a, it's a predatory animal, right? They're compared yeah. to rats. 
they're compared to termites, they're compared to snakes, right? Even like the Snopes Hotel where the S is backwards and like it was drawn in my book, so it looks almost like a snake too. There's something to be said, we were talking earlier about how Flem's, he's not evil, right? Is, is the hyena evil for eating the animal? I don't know. To me, he's just surviving. He's a, animals are amoralistic. And it's almost like that's how a lot of the Snope, Snopesism is, right? It's, it's not we're trying to be evil. It's we're trying to get ahead in life, in a sense. The Snope posse or pack, I, I, I think that there is this hierarchy here. And they're, they're not evil. Th- these animals, they're predators. They, they go after the prey. They see the weak. And they devour them. You know, the termites eat, the the hawk eats, the the wolf eats, and these people are those types of personalities. And I think that they're written very well for that. And it gives them so much complexity of them moving the story forward. Of we want the best for us, but we're also not going to let Jefferson drag us down. And Jefferson is full of hypocrites. And you know, just because you know what we're doing, we're not trying to hide it like you are. I think that's something, you know, to kind of aspire to that the Snopes aren't trying to hide who they are. Now, they do swindle people, and that's not a good thing, but everybody knows if you're Snopes what type of person you are. Now, what's not apparent is how, okay, so he gets into the fight with Despain, loses badly, right? Tries to kind of start bringing a lawsuit against Despain. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like it's. He tries to get back at him by charging him with the plant stuff. It, it doesn't really work out the best for him. But what's what's confusing to me, and I think for a lot of readers maybe, is the EULA proposal, right? When Ratliff looks up and he sees the lights on in Gavin Stevens' office, and EULA's up there and proposes to have relations with him, if you will. <laughs> yeah. And that's when, you know, Gavin starts to say, like, wait, is Flem impotent, right? Like, But he, he he's been obsessed with EULA. He has her offer herself to him, and he turns her down. You see that coming? No. What? what? I mean, this is winning the lotto and tearing up the ticket. Like, what? He he gets what he... I, I think it's that idea of that you always want something that you can't have, and now that you have it, he's like, eh, nah. Which is kind of heartbreaking in so many regards of the story. Because I did want to see them kind of have their happy ending because I thought that maybe people would be better off or maybe that could help Flem become a better person or I don't know, maybe uh, the Spain just seems like a, he seemed like a MacGuffin too. He just, red, red herring. He was seemed so irrelevant to the, the triangle of Flem and Gavin and Eula. Well, do you think when we talk about some of the earlier themes, the word we can't define, like honor, uh, reputation. He was trying to protect Eula all along, right? Like he viewed himself as the savior of Jefferson. We don't want the women to have a bad rep, right? We got to make them look good. And when she comes along and he's exact and she's doing exactly what he was trying to protect her image from, it's almost like he can't reconcile his image of her with the actual, presentation and reality of her at the same time. And I think it breaks him a little bit because afterwards he drops the case against Spain, right? And almost like, I would say he's ready to reinvent himself because it's almost like everything he's known is a lie because this is when he leaves for Germany. This is when he like, he takes off for, what is it, eight years he's gone in, in World War One and such? Like, 
I think World War One is also representative of a lot of young men trying to find themselves, the lost generation afterwards, right? Uh, I think he's so shattered before the war of what he thinks life is that he's trying to almost find out what life is and destroy destroy his false expectations, maybe? I'm not sure. How did you take his his escape, his running away from everything? Well, leading up to that, I I thought that he was testing her and she failed the test and that that's what broke him. He said, you know, I'm going to give you this good life. Don't do what you've always done. Break the expectations. And I think maybe if she had said no, he would have been like, yeah, good job, champ. I'm proud of you. And they would have gone ahead for it. He he wanted her to subvert what he was expecting her to do that she'd always done. And then he's he's running from it because it didn't turn out the way that he wanted. And I think that that sings to his immaturity. Uh, a, a lot of young men, they, they run from their problems. At least I know that I did sometimes as a young man. And I think that uh, the glory of war and his own broken heart pushes him towards World War One, where he thinks that, yeah, he can reinvent himself, find himself, uh, or just get away from Jefferson and his problems and find something something better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The war scenes, man, not, it was so strange the way Faulkner wrote him because it was just like, there's a lot of death, you know what I mean? Like in terms of like the Bayard, Bayard, Bayard Sartoris died, the he kills Manfred to Sprain, and then Flynn becomes the new vice president or whatever it was, and 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 uh, the other Satoris kid died. The, the, uh, there's just so much death that happens here that is kind of um, strange for me how he interpreted basically how society views it. For me, the war is very jarring, and this is part of that tonal shift of the entire story. So World War One is a very slow war, a war of attrition. They sit in these ditches for weeks, months, years on end, and the front battle line shifts sometimes just a few feet over the course of weeks, months, years. And then in this part of the book, you have death, 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 death all over the place. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. not how it was in reality. So for me as a historian, I'm like, wait, why, why is he writing it this way? But I think it's to kind of push you uh, out of your comfort zone because that's what's happening to these characters. Well, you know, in real life, we had the lost generation afterwards. Like a lot of people were like, what do I do now? Like this war defines so much of my life. We had the pornography shop like we talked about. But also there's also around here, I think was when we had the narration of, Mont, um, what was his name? Wall Street Snopes, right? And, and, and much, <laughs> Go Wall Street's well, much, back. <laughs> much, much all, Wall Street's back. All right. All right. right. Uh, <laughs> earlier, we also had Eck. And I think both of these characters were kind of interesting because they're both there's there's Snope genetics. That's not a word, but genetics is, is kind of question. Um, Eck was helping people and was nice. He can't be a Snopes. Right. And then Wall Street is a self-made man through hard work. He can't be a Snopes either. <laughs> like like hard work kind and of Snopes don't go what together. Is a Snopes? Yeah. Like what are we almost? And I think that's what the great thing about this story, even though. I, I struggle with it comparative to the, the the previous book, the Hamlet. This one is just has a lot more depth to it of who are truly these people, and does Flem really represent the Snopes clan? Is that really who all of them are? Do they really all want to be that way? Do they want to be perceived that way? And I think that if you take it from the the Snopes 
chapters or Flem's viewpoint chapters, then yes. But there's all this contradiction through, you know, Gavin and others in the story that not everybody is going to be perceived that way. Well, we don't get Flem. I don't think we, the narration of this was so complex because you'd have like, I kid you not, wasn't there one part where it was like Tom Tom told Gowan, who told Ratliff, who told Gavin, who told Chick, who's now telling us, the reader, the story. Like the narration was insane. Oh, and he would almost... say that. Yeah, and he would say it was like, well, he wouldn't tell me until I was certain years old. So my cousin, who's not really my cousin, who became my cousin when we got a certain age, told me this. Yeah, it, yeah, it was definitely. And that's one thing, too, I struggle with. And I encourage people, read this, don't listen to this, or read it first, then listen to it, or do them at the same time, and maybe you'll be able to uh, follow along a little bit better. Because, yeah, a little bit confusing there, especially in the beginning. Does it play into the mythology of things not always being true, that the stories we tell kind of get exaggerated, particularly as they uh, expand over time that we may embellish things here and there. Like that's kind of how I took it. I know that I do that. Every good story has an embellishment or two. It's something that (laughs) brings your reader in, hooks them, and then you can slowly let the truth out or you retell the story. And I think that that's why we're kind of seeing it from these different perspectives is we see the one that's entertaining and then we see the story that's the real story or what we're led to believe is this person's interpretation of the real story of the real Jefferson. Yeah. Do you, um, you know, it was a little bit of a, a slog for me. Some of the Linda scenes, I don't know how you felt about them, but they weren't super compelling to me, but we have these scenes where now Gavin's protecting Linda and Linda's prohibited from going off. We thought by Eula, then we find out that it's Flem, uh, that, that Flem might have been holding ransom the information about uh, his wife's adultery, using it to tell Will Varner who comes into town. And that ultimately it, we find out that maybe it was being used as kind of like a, a tool for Flem to kind of have Linda sign over her inheritance to him. Um, very convoluted way for what is ultimately Flem practicing Snopicism, right? Like, like it didn't seem too engaging for me. How did that scene land upon you? Was there, was not that there wasn't more. I mean, I, I hyper condensed that, but like, was there something major that I should be taking away from those scenes that I'm not thinking of? I guess I just thought that this was, once I got there, I figured this was the way that we got to Eula and her suicide. Uh, yeah, I guess that yeah. was the, the that was the the end of the journey, and I didn't take a lot away from the road to get there. No, so yeah, you you obviously got more out of it than I did. Yeah, the, the Linda was a little bit of a slog. I felt like she was tacked on at the end, right? I mean, you have all these other characters that have had all this great development through much of the story, and she just she's kind of there in the background, and now she's forced into the front, into the fray, and there wasn't enough substance for me to latch onto. And then at the end, I thought, oh, this was just to get me to, you know, her mom eventually committing suicide, which, you know, broke my heart because I loved you. I thought she was a great character. And now she won't be in the next book. Uh. Did you know um, Faulkner, he claims he cried when he was writing that scene? Well, he was right. He claimed he was cry- cried when writing a scene in this book. It's hypothesized that it was probably the suicide scene. 
I, I was trying to think of, is there any scene in here that's like as funny as something from the Reavers where he could be crying from laughter? I mean, because most people you know, associate crying from sadness, <laughs> but you can cry from laughter as well. Sure. And I don't sure. I don't think there's any part of the book that I could argue against that. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, suicide in itself is, is, is heartbreaking. And then somebody that is, a, I think, a pretty decent person. Uh, taking their own life is just it's so hard and I, I probably would have cried writing it too i was i was damn near in tears listening to it two hard questions for you and there's probably not a right answer here but why <laughs> do you think why do you think eula was looking for relations with men and why do you think she didn't leave phlegm i'll answer the second question first i think she didn't leave phlegm because of retaliation and by the townsfolk like you're with a snopes and you leave him what does that say about you and then do you think do you think also that by being with flynn it protects linda though like the imagery of the southern bell the good southern wife like like she can't leave and support linda on her own so she almost needs to protect linda by being with flynn like could could that have been an answer too Maybe. I don't think it protects the Southern Belle. She's not t- protecting herself. It's protecting yeah, yeah, the yeah. Southern family, right? Yeah. It's taking yeah, the, because yeah. family is everything in the South. Family still everything to a lot of people, not just in the South, but anywhere in our country. And that old adage of you, you, you don't get divorced. You stay together for the children. Uh, you, you do whatever it takes. And she did whatever it took to protect and give her daughter her best life. Uh, yeah. And she technically, I mean, I don't know how she viewed it because we really don't get much of a, of her window. It's all I heard and speculated. And I imagine up in that, in that window, they were doing this, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I imagine, you know, technically by genetics, Linda is not Flem's child. It's McCarran's, right? Correct. So even like this family that she had with, with Flem, if we call it a family, is is a show right like it's i don't want to say it's it's not meant to say you're not really a family but but i think that she had some resentment that she never had the the to your point the picturesque family with phlegm it was they hid the premarital uh engagements that she had from a young child like being always pursued and and, and the town wasn't dumb they, when they came back with a child they knew that that child was older based on like the time frame and such of when they came back. They even still call that out in the narration. But I think she had right. like some resentment of her choices that led to this, that led the promiscuity that led to that. And I don't think she learned how to express herself any other way, but I wonder if that was just her way of just getting attention, getting affection. All she's known her whole life, particularly growing up was attention from men. Is this just her tool for how she gets that attention and, and how she, thanks or rewards men is, is, is maybe one way of how she, ex- she uses it to express herself. Agreed. I want to go back real quick to the other question. I think that she do, doesn't feel maybe guilt, but she feels like she owes Flem one because he was the guy that took in somebody else's child, treated, I don't know if treated her good, but treated her better than maybe somebody else would and treated Linda like his own she feels like she owes him a little bit. But to your point there at the end, 
Yeah, I, I think that maybe if we knew a little bit more about her background, this is her, mm -hmm. you know, maybe not having a strong father figure, uh, being pursued from such a young age. That's the only attention she's ever known. And once you get used to a certain attention, it becomes your new normal. It's just what makes you feel comfortable. It becomes her comfort zone to feel that way. And so that's why she's going after, you know, all these different characters and Gavin and Spain and everybody uh, throughout the story is just that that makes her feel special because that's how she's always felt special since she was a young girl. Yeah. Now the ending, we have the whole IO Snopes and old, I, I, when you talk, when, you're, when you said you're trying to search for something funny, I think that might've been maybe the closest to funny, at least to me with a mule charging after this lady <laughs> and she, they smell burning and the house is burning down. She buys the mule just to shoot the mule. <laughs> That's probably the, 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 the closest to comedy, at least dark comedy in this book for me. Dark uh, comedy. Have, I mean, cause yeah. it's not, I mean, it's funny, but it's kind of like mm, funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think at this point too, it's also episodic at the end because you have that. And then we end with the, 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 the I think that happens before the funeral funeral and then at the end, we have like the years later where we have Byron Snopes return to town with his children who are half, uh, I think in the narration, they call them half Snopes, half, you know, Indians, Na Native Americans. Um, yeah. So, so, and that part was, I guess, very controversial for a lot of people with uh, how, how they were depicted, right? Like in terms of them being uh, very antagonistic hooligans. Like, I mean, they literally slashed that one guy's face and killed dogs, not totally normal behavior. Right. How did you, how did you take that last few episodes? I guess, in a sense, I think this is for me, the empire strikes back of, I think the trilogy we're ending on a sour note. We've got to go up positive from here. I feel like that Faulkner's bring us down to bring us back up. I think he's also trying to cement your idea that you've been talking about this whole time of what is Snopism? What are these people's definition of their clan? And I think hooligan is a good word. Uh, he, he, he's, he's hitting you in the face with it finally of like, subtly, Flem is not a good guy. He's not evil, but he's not a good guy. And he will swindle everybody out of their last cent. And now you have the, this coming right forward to you saying, this is what Snopism is going to be coming up in the next book expect more shenanigans but maybe a little bit you know darker tone even further darker tone from the snopes clan in the conclusion of the the mansion you know what i'll say this what i really really this was actually probably one of my favorite i don't know faulkner does a lot of really good things like he has beautiful quotes that i, sh I you know i shared a couple earlier but phlegm buys to Spain's old mansion when, when he gets like a, several people get run out of town, right? You had that, that guy that fought with, uh, I think it was Gavin earlier and, um, he got kicked out of town basically to Spain kind of gets, yeah, run he out got of ran town. out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and chick they, even kind of like reflects on like, well, that, that door <laughs> to the bank didn't mean what it used to. And maybe that's kind of like the, the whole point of this book is, is we have this quote, Never mind. Actually, I don't have the quote, but <laughs> he, he, he he's looking at this bank and he talks about how things happen before we're aware of them. And and I would say that that felt like a lot of these things, the things just kind of happening before we're even aware. And then we reflect back on it because you'll notice even through the Linda scenes, through the Eula scenes, like the narration keeps coming back to it. And what I love about how the new keeps replacing the old theme again, uh, there's a lot of layering with Faulkner. 
how when Flem starts to fix up the mansion a little bit, do you remember what he changed? Did he change the 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 color? The the columns, like he he made it wider columns, or something like that in the front. That's, that's but what only I meant. in the Not front. Color, columns, yeah, yeah. Only in the front, because so much where people can Southern, see it. Yeah, because so much of Southern society is about what you Perception. present to others, right? Yep. So. So how Faulkner wraps all that up together was, I, I just, I really think he's just a very skilled writer, but what is ultimately kind of like a book that had some parts that had some, uh, some valleys for me too, I would say. Yeah, I struggled through a few parts of this. I also struggled again, like I said, because it was narrated. I also struggled. I felt like it jumped a lot with the different narrators. Um, Chick was annoying to me. Uh, I, I felt like all of this stuff was just... <laughs> I felt like all of his stuff was, I don't know, immature. Is that right, the right word? Naive, that's for like, sure, right? Na- because Okay, naive. That's a much better word. Yeah, all mm-hmm. of his stuff was just so naive. Well, and, and like, the way on, he presents guy. stuff in the beginning, like, well, I wasn't born yet, but seven years ago, this is what happened. And you're like, what? Like, come on, man. Yeah, like, you wouldn't know that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, tell, I tell my niece stories all the time, but would you trust her if she relayed what I said happened to me 15 years ago? I mean got to be a little bit skeptical so i guess that's what those chapters made me skeptical of a few things and just i guess annoyed me a little bit but not that it took anything away from my enjoyment it just you know like okay i get it this has been our discussion of the town did we discuss everything no but we we covered kind of like what our initial reactions are and such let us know in the comments down below what you thought of the town and what were some of your favorite parts my name is benuna peace look forward to seeing in the mansion peace